got your Bible um, open to Acts chapter 13, 13th chapter of Acts. This morning we're going to think through the next chapter in our series through this great book. It'll take us all school year to get through. And this will be the last chapter we'll look at until next semester in Acts. Uh, next week, for those of you who are still here, um, I'll be, Aaron Wine has asked me to teach Sunday school for the youth group, so I'll be up there helping him out, and uh, we're still having Sunday school, and I've asked a special guest to, to teach us next week in Sunday school, none other than Brooks Work, and uh, I know that changes things for you. If you were uh, planning on headed out early, you might want to rethink those plans and, and be here to hear Brooks. Then after that, you'll be gone for Christmas, and uh, so we'll pick back up in Acts again in January. But today we're in Acts 13, and in Acts 13, just to situate you where we are in the book, and again to remind us of how we got here, some things we've already seen, the focus here in Acts 13 switches back to Paul and his ministry. Up, up to this point in uh in Acts, it's been primarily on Peter's ministry, the focus, in Jerusalem. A little bit different. Paul has made an appearance, but this is when the focus very heavily switches to Paul and, and his ministry. We, we met Paul for the first time back in Acts chapter 7, uh, when he was standing approvingly over the, the death, stoning to death and martyrdom of Stephen. And in chapter 8, we were told that Saul was... Then Paul, then Saul, was ravaging the church and going from house to house in Jerusalem to find Christians, dragging them off, uh, to imprison them. And the believers there were having to flee their homes, flee Jerusalem, flee to the surrounding areas to avoid that persecution. The apostles were the only ones that stayed there. Then in chapter 9, we, we saw that he had gotten letters of permission from the high priest in Jerusalem to go outside of Jerusalem, this time to go to Damascus to, to look for Christians, to uh, find them, imprison them, or even worse, to put them to death. In his own words, he wrote in Galatians that he persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. Or think about his own words, Paul's own words later in Acts, when he's standing trial before various rulers, he's standing before Agrippa, and give, bearing testimony, his own testimony to Agrippa. And this is what Paul says about his own life in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's Paul's own words about himself. And one of those cities, one of those foreign cities that he persecuted them to was Damascus, like I just said. That's where he was headed when the Lord met him on that road in a blinding light, and it was, it was there in that moment, meeting the Lord, seeing His glory, that, that, that Paul was, was brought humbly to repentance and faith, and he was converted. And then he began, I'm still just recapping how we got to this point, the bits and pieces where we've seen Paul so far. Once converted, Paul began preaching Christ 
as, as zealously as he ever opposed him. And, uh, and, and the ironic thing is, in Acts, especially like in chapter 9, the ironic thing is, when he was there in, in Damascus, why was he there? Why was he in Damascus? Because he had gotten letters to persecute Christians. Well, then that's where he was converted. And now that he's in that city, the irony of all ironies uh, is that he began to experience persecution so severely there as a Christian now that he had to be let down out of a window and escape the city. So he went there to persecute Christians, became a Christian, and had to leave because of persecution. Well, the focus at that point went back to Peter for a couple of chapters as the, the gospel began coming to the Gentiles. But now, beginning here in chapter 13, uh, through the end of the book, the, the focus is on Paul and the gospel moving to the Gentile world in earnest. Um, because what we're going to find here is, in Acts 13, is the first half of the first missionary journey that Paul took, Paul and his companions. Throughout Acts, he's going to take three different missionary journeys. What you find in Acts 13 is the first half of the first one where he, the second half is obviously the next chapter, but he, here he goes to Cyprus, and he goes to four different cities in, um, in Galatia, and starting churches there. He and Barnabas, and for a little while, Mark. So, set, out by the, set apart by the church in Antioch and sent out. So let's read the chapter together, and then we'll see what we can find here. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and, and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the, Lord sa the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's Mark. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul to, uh, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, that's just the Latinized uh, version of his uh, Hebrew name, Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. 
after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent messengers to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the messenger of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up uh, with him from, Jer from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, and he quotes Isaiah 55, 3, I will, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 1610, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let me just pause right there and say that word uh, freed in verse 38. Uh, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Uh, that could be translated justified. It's, it's the same word as Paul uses elsewhere. So you could read it. Everyone who believes is justified from, from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's just another reminder that to stand righteous before God and to stand justified in His sight does not come through, through how good we are and how well we can obey, but through Jesus and His obedience and His cross. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. This is Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if... One tells you. Let me pause again right there. I don't want to ever see that on one of your Instagram pages, that, uh, that verse. Don't be like, this cool verse, God's going to do something awesome. 
He's going to do something that will blow your mind. And he quote, because what the awesome thing here is something really terrible. In Habakkuk 1.5, he was about to bring destruction upon them. So, uh, yeah, that would be a little out of context if you post it on your Instagram. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What a time that was. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves were unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord had commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. It was a long chapter, but what a privilege it was to have a place where we can just sit and hear the reading of your word aloud. You told us through, through Timothy, when you wrote to Timothy, not to neglect the public reading of Scripture, and that's what we've just done. May you add your blessing to it. I pray as we study your word today that you would give us eyes to see the truth and you give us minds to understand what we see here. Give us hearts to, to, so that we don't just know it in our minds. We embrace and love the truth. And then through that, give us wills to obey what it leads us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, when I read this chapter again, I've read it many times. And one of the things that strikes me every time I read this chapter is, uh, and it always stands out to me, is the emphasis that is put on the Holy Spirit. It, the, this chapter begins and ends with the Holy Spirit. And, and it, even in the, in the middle part of the chapter, where may, even when there isn't a specific mention of the Holy Spirit, we know from the rest of the Scriptures, from what is described, that, that the Holy Spirit is working in the background of all of those things that are mentioned. So what I want us to think about this morning from this great chapter is the Spirit-empowered growth of the church the spirit empowered growth of the church and if you really think about it when you're reading acts this is exactly what you should expect to see um, throughout our study we've made repeated mention of acts 1 8 most of the time when we talk about acts 1 8 we've talked about it in terms of it kind of being a road map for how the book plays out so how the how the gospel is going to progress from jerusalem to all judea and samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's, that's all right and good. But don't forget how that verse begins. And how the, the gospel would go from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Because it begins with, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's why the gospel would go forth in the way that it does. So really, the whole book of Acts up to this point has been an illustration of the Spirit-empowered 
growth of the church, and it will continue to be that all the way up to chapter 28. But we do see it in a very particular way here in chapter 13. So here's how I see it playing out, how I want to divide it up. First, I want us to see the Spirit directing in verses 1 through 12. The Spirit directing the mission of Paul and Barnabas. Second, I want us to see the Spirit testifying. We'll see that in different ways from verses 13 to 41. Uh, uh, yeah, really in their, in their ministry there in Antioch of Pisidia, um, the Spirit testifying. We'll see that in different ways. I think it's, it's pretty neat. And then third and finally, the Spirit saving at the end of the chapter from 42 to the end of the chapter. So let's, let's think through this and start by noticing the Spirit directing in the early part of the chapter. That's probably the clearest uh, point in these early verses, the Holy Spirit directing the church there in Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Paul and to send them out for their missionary work. And I want us to think about this. Um, yeah, I want us to think about this Spirit directing from three different vantage points. One, I want us to think about the Holy Spirit speaking, directing through the, the Spirit's voice to them, and them, them hearing the voice of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit speaking, them hearing the voice of the Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit filling them for witness. That's how I want us to think about the Spirit directing them. So it's clear, first of all, that the Spirit was directing the mission, their mission and the growth of the church here through speaking to them. Okay, We see it in verse 2. Look there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, said, set apart Barnabas for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, before we get into, there's a couple of noteworthy points about this that I want to say, I just want to throw out there before we jump back into the Holy Spirit speaking, all right? Uh, for one, in this verse, you see the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, if a Jehovah's Witness ever comes to your door, knocks on your door, and tries to start talking to you about what they believe, they don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person. They believe the Holy Spirit is a, a force, like it's, the, it's the, the power of the Lord. It's not a person. But, but we believe, because they, they, don't, they don't hold to a Trinitarian view of God, but cle clearly there is biblical warrant for holding that, that, that we, we believe in a triune God, because here's the Holy Spirit, and, and clearly he's a person. Uh, he is speaking. He's doing what a person does. He speaks. He decides. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. He's deciding. He's, yeah, so he's directing. That's something a person does. So our, 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 our God is triune. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for another, uh, we see in that verse the, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Not just that he's a divine person, but because he's a divine person, He's sovereign. He's sovereignly directing the church. We see that in, in other places. Think about 1 Corinthians 12. We looked at that earlier this semester in, in CBS when it's the Holy Spirit who, who sovereignly distributes spiritual gifts in the church as he wills, as he decides, right? Um, here he chooses Barnabas and Paul and, and determines the work to which he calls them. Here's, I just want to throw... Throw a little theological thinking at you before we dive back into the Spirit speaking in verse 2. When you see things like this, though, don't think about 
this as if it's the Holy Spirit just out there doing his own thing apart from the Father and the Son. Um, there's a fancy term in Christian theology that you, you need to know. Um, and the term is inseparable operations. Inseparable, inseparable operations. Um, and it simply means that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all active in every work of God. Okay? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in every work of God, inseparable operations. The Father is never doing anything apart from the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is never doing anything apart from the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is never doing anything apart from the Father and the Son. Okay? So the persons of our triune God act inseparably. They operate inseparably. And it must be the case because there is one God. And so that's why when the Spirit speaks here, He speaks sovereignly because when He speaks, it is the voice, not just of the Holy Spirit, but of our triune God. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But back to verse 2. It's very clear here that the Spirit was directing them and directing their mission through His Word. He spoke. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And He spoke in ways that they could understand. It's worth asking how. How? How did the Holy Spirit speak to them in that day? How did the Holy Spirit do that? Well, we'll need to use some scriptural imagination because when it really comes down to it, if you look at this passage, it never says exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. It never says it. He spoke, and here's how he did it. It just says he said it. Okay, so what are the options before us? Well, we could surmise that it was through the prophets and the teachers that are mentioned in verse 1, it starts out by saying there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, Niger. Um, right? So it could have been through them that the Spirit brought this word. That's, I think that's the most likely answer. That the, It mentions these prophets and they bring the word of the Lord and lo and behold, while they're there, the Holy Spirit said something. Right? So that's, but I'll say more about that in a minute. I suppose it could be an audible voice. He could have spoken in an audible voice. There's scriptural precedent for that. In fact, in Paul's own life, back in chapter 9, he heard an audible voice from the Lord on the road to Damascus. He, it could have been an audible voice that they all heard. It could have been an audible voice that one of them heard and told the others. That's an option. The Holy Spirit could have spoken, and they could have, it could have been, he could have spoken through the collective will of the whole church. Maybe it just seemed right to all of them. To set apart Barnabas and Saul, right? Could have been that way. The whole, and because we know that the whole church had a hand, even though the whole, there's a few mentioned here, the whole church in Antioch had a hand in sending them out. Because if you, when we come to the next chapter, at the end of the next chapter, when they come back from this first missionary journey, it is to the whole church there that they report. This is what the Lord did, right? So the whole church had a hand in this thing. It could be a combination of all three of those, or more, I don't know. But I'll come back in just a minute to how the, the Spirit spoke. But one thing before we come back to it, I want to point out while we're still in these verses, is notice the emphasis here on how they heard the voice of the Lord. Not, not just how the Spirit spoke, but how they heard it. Because Luke gives a description here, Luke writing Acts, he gives a description, and he doesn't just focus on what the Holy Spirit said but what they were doing when he spoke, okay? What they were doing when he spoke. Again, in verse, in verse 2, 
He says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said these things. So they were in a position where they desperately wanted to hear from the Lord. They desperately wanted to sense His presence and His direction to them. And they, they, they were putting themselves in a position where they could hear His voice when He spoke, however it is that He spoke. Or they could sense His direction when He moved in their hearts and minds. They put themselves in a position. And that is something that we could learn from them. Because right? so, so often we don't even put ourselves in a position to hear from the Lord. How, how often do we sometimes go whole days without reading the Scriptures? Or, or many times when we do read, how often do we just hurry through it? We never slow down to meditate on what it is we've just read or read it prayerfully and meditatively. Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? Lord, what do you say to me through this? What's our prayer life like? Not to even mention fasting. More than anything, they wanted to be close to the Lord and to sense His presence. So they worshipped and they prayed and they fasted. And even after He spoke, they continued worshipping and praying and fasting. And that gets us back to the question of how then, when they were worshipping, how did the Spirit speak to them? It seems likely to me that when the, the way that the Spirit spoke to them uh, was through the prophets and teachers mentioned above, which seemed good to the whole congregation, right? They were all involved in it. And today, we are, we are almost in a better position than they were today. I mean, today, we're, we're not reliant on those offices to, to receive the word of the Lord, Right, because in that, in that day, they didn't have the completed Scriptures. And in fact, when the, what, what, in fact, what the Spirit said to them on that day is now recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Right? So uh, in that day, there was, a, there was still a very real possibility of a thus saith the Lord, and whatever, whatever is said is something that had not yet to that point ever been revealed and could be written down in Scripture. That's, that, that's the world in which they lived. That day is no more. The, the Scripture is now complete. And God Himself testifies of this written Word that in it we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need. So when the Spirit speaks to us today, He primarily speaks through what has already been written down. He does speak. But He speaks to us in these words. In these, these are His words. Uh, J.I. Packer said, for, some, for ones who claim uh, private revelations outside of the Word, he says, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they're unnecessary. If private revelations disagree with Scripture, they're false. Right? We have His Word. We are in a in a better position than they were in that day, in the sense that to hear the Spirit speaking to us fully and sufficiently on any matter whatsoever pertaining to life and obedience before Him, we open our Bibles and we read. We open our Bibles and read. And the Holy Spirit, as we read, as we read meditatively, as we read prayerfully, as we read slowly, the Holy Spirit gives us insight into what has been written. 
and gives us wisdom and gives us uh, counsel in how to take this word and direct our lives through it. That's how it happens. And through that, he directs us still today as he did then, right? That, that's something we, we have to wrestle with because we thirst, we thirst for specificity. But when we come upon a decision, Lord, just tell me. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Do I do this or do I do that? Do I go here or do I go there? Right? Do I or don't I? We want specificity. Right? But just because that is what we crave and what we want and feel like we need doesn't negate the fact that God has told us His Word is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Right? Why wouldn't God be specific? Why does God... Why does God leave us with general counsel, general wisdom? And how is that sufficient for my every need? It forces me, it forces me to go to this word, read this general wisdom, think about my situation, wrestle with it, ask the Lord to give me wisdom, and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and then make a decision based on his counsel. And the, the, the road of God's will is wide because He's given you general wisdom, right? You can, walk, you can be confident that you're walking in His will when you are seeking to make your decisions based on the wisdom you gave, He gave in His Word, right? And what has happened to you in the process? You have grown in wisdom. You have grown in godliness. It doesn't, it doesn't sanctify you much at all to look up and read a cloud formation in the sky, it doesn't sanctify you very much to hear an audible voice. But it does sanctify you to open this word and wrestle with it. And then walk by faith and not by sight. That sanctifies you. And so we are in a better position than they were in that day. We weren't, we weren't waiting on a word from the Lord we haven't yet received. We've already got it all. all right? So he still directs us today. But before we leave these early verses... We see the, the, the Spirit directing their mission through speaking to them and them hearing His voice, but then also through empowering their witness. Uh, we're told in verse 4 that the Holy Spirit sent out Barnabas and Saul, and as they went, He empowered their witness. And they, were, they went to the island of Cyprus. They were given an opportunity to bear witness to a high-ranking official. And it says in verse 9 that, they, that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit before he spoke. Now, what did... Being filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment uh, do for Paul? How did it show up? How did it manifest itself? Well, you might think it, it empowered him to speak very forthrightly to this magician who was opposing them, and he did. He said, you're going to be blind, and he was. <laughs> you son of the devil, uh, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. I mean, he, he, he spoke very forthrightly and kind of performed a miracle by causing the man to go blind but if you read all the way to verse 12, something else is more striking to those around Paul than what he just did to that magician by blinding him. Look again at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished not at the blindness of the man. What was he astonished at? The teaching. The teaching of the Lord. So that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit primarily empowered him to do. 
to bear powerful witness and to teach powerfully in the name of the Lord. And we see more of that as the chapter proceeds because the Spirit not only directed their mission in this way and the growth and expansion of the church, but also was active as they testified to Christ. We see the Spirit testifying. This is something that I see hints of all throughout the, the meat of the chapter. In, in, the, in these verses, beginning at verse 13 through 41, uh, Paul and Barnabas have moved on from Cyprus. They're now in Antioch of Pisidia. And we see what some of their plan was. They would go first to the Jew, uh, Jewish synagogue, proclaim Christ to the Jews, and after that, turn to the Gentiles. So they go to the synagogue first. And the normal congregants there in the synagogue followed their normal routine. We're told in verse 15 that... Um, they, they read from the scriptures, they read from the law and the prophets, and then after that, because Paul and Barnabas were guests, the rulers of the synagogue asked them if they wanted to say anything. Y'all think we should still do that? Hey, you're new, tell us something. Stand. You probably felt like I did that to you this morning. Anyway, um, but Paul didn't mind, so he got up and he, and, he, and he spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke. It was much like it has a lot of echoes of Stephen's speech back in chapter seven. He essentially summarizes the whole Old Testament story, and it leads up to the birth of Christ and his death and resurrection, promised one to come. And this is where you you need a little also need a little scriptural imagination to see the spirits working in this. I've just mentioned it doesn't tell us when it just says he says y'all are guests. Do you have anything you want to say? And he stands up and he speaks. It doesn't specifically tell us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke. But I've already mentioned that his speech echoes Stephen's in chapter seven. And chapter seven did tell us Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said that. Um, we've already been told in this very chapter that when he spoke in Cyprus, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In addition to the fact that they're still on a missionary journey that the Holy Spirit sent them out on. So I don't think it's an illegitimate conclusion to draw that even when Paul stood to speak there in Antioch of Pisidia, the Spirit was testifying through him, even though it doesn't specifically say it. Uh, and that not only fits the context of Acts here, but, but again, uh, Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witness. And it fits in the larger context of the New Testament. Think about John chapter 15, Jesus' own words in John 15, 26. Jesus said, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So when we see the apostles bearing witness to Christ, Jesus said it is the Holy Spirit bearing witness through them. Through them. So when they testify to Christ, it's the Spirit speaking through them. And as I reread this chapter and thought about it more and more, I kept seeing more and more of the Spirit's activity, not just in their testifying, but what they were testifying to. Okay? For example, look, at the, look in the speech that he gave. All right? For example, in verse, verses 21 and 22, Paul talks about how in the Old Testament, King Saul was removed from being king in Israel to establish David as king in Israel. David's the one from whom the Messiah would one day come. So he just talks about it in terms here of Saul was removed, David was established. But when you read the Old Testament, how is that described? The spirit was taken from Saul. The spirit was rushed upon David, right? So this is the Holy Spirit's activity of taking the kingship from one to another. That's why when David committed 
adultery with Bathsheba, and he prays in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me, right? Don't take the kingdom from me. That's, that's, the Holy Spirit is active there, all right? You move further, and he, t- he brings up John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25. Um, yeah, and, and, and notice what he says in verse 25. He says, what do you suppose that, that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Those words are now recorded for us in Matthew 3.11. You know what the very next words are in Matthew 3.11? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the Holy Spirit was active in John's preaching and Jesus' ministry. Or beginning in verse 30. He brings up the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. uh, Showing that it was promised and foreshadowed in several places in the Old Testament. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead wasn't separated from both the Father and the Holy Spirit. Remember? Inseparable operations. It wasn't just that Jesus the Son raised, but God the the triune God was involved in this. Think about what Paul says later in Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the same Spirit who raised Jesus raises us. So all through Paul's Christ-focused testimony, the work of the Holy Spirit is in the background of all the things that he's testifying to. So he's not just testifying in the power of the Holy Spirit, but the things that he's testifying to, the Holy Spirit is involved in. Why is that important? Well, because the order is like this. The Holy Spirit brings about the event that you're about to bear witness to. And then he empowers you to bear witness to it. It leads very reasonably, leads you very reasonably to conclude that the Holy Spirit will also rule over the responses to that witness. He brought about the things you bear witness to. He empowers you to bear witness. Why would he stop there? He also is sovereign over the responses. So we're talking about the Spirit-empowered growth of the church. So I, I think we see in this chapter that the Holy Spirit is not just sovereignly present in the accomplishment of the gospel. He's not just sovereignly present in the bearing witness to the gospel. He's also sovereignly present in the reception of the gospel in the world. So let's think about that very quickly. We see this in the last section of the chapter. Um, we'll see this quickly. Again, to see this, we need to combine what we see clearly in this passage, within the larger context of Acts. When Paul, filled with the Spirit, bears witness to the gospel here, we're told in verse 43 that many of the Jews believed. We're told in the very next verse, verse 44, that the next week the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Jews and Gentiles alike, but clearly predominantly Gentiles. On that day, we're told that many of the Jews opposed Paul, and Paul said, well, I'm going to, shake the dust off my feet toward you, turn my focus to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, in verse 48, it says they rejoiced, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Clearly, the way that's worded shows this was a work of God. And to say it was a work of God is also to say it's a work of the Holy Spirit, which is why the the final verse of the chapter says of these who believed that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit saved them. 
This is an amazing chapter. There's so much more that we could say. So much longer we could camp out on the things we've talked about. But if, it's, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that the Holy Spirit is active and sovereign over the growth of His church. He set apart Barnabas and, and Paul. He set them apart. He sent them out. He filled them with power to bear witness to the gospel, which, which he, the gospel which He brought about together with the Father and Son. And He worked in the hearts of many who heard the gospel to bring them to repentance and faith and fills them to continue in the faith. That's all in this chapter. He's sovereign over the building of His church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But He is doing it through the Holy Spirit whose presence with us is so vital that Jesus said, it's good that I go away so that I send the helper to you. That's an encouraging word. Let's pray.